All right, Doxa Church, good morning. Uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Rudy Hartman, and frankly, that's my loss. I'd love to get to, to meet you, get to know you. Um, I get to be on staff here with Doxa, working primarily with our college students. I hope you've had a great week, and we are going to just hop straight in. So Mark chapter 1, if you have a Bible, you can head there. Uh, Mark chapter 1, verses, are we good? I care about you. I love you, Logan. Okay, sorry, I didn't want to like, I'm going to ignore that like that. Um, Mark chapter 1. We're continuing our series through Mark chapter 1. If this is your first week here, good news, we're still in chapter 1. If you've been around, good news, we're finishing chapter 1 today. Uh, it's, it's been a great start to this series. Um, and you, you had there, I'll catch up to you. I, I told this woman's story at Salt Company this Thursday. Um, but I've just not been able to stop thinking about this woman uh, by the name of Perpetua. In, in church history, there's a North African woman uh, who went by the name of Viva Perpetua, whose story is as incredible as it is difficult to hear. Perpetua was born into a family where her mother loved Jesus and her father did not. In North Africa, Carthage in the late second century, eventually for following Jesus, for being baptized, she would be put in prison, and not long after that, she'd be martyred in the arena at Carthage in the year 202 or 203. And there's this moment in her life that I haven't been able to stop thinking about this, this week. It's this interaction between her and her father. And her father's trying to, as he had several times, get her to deconvert, get her to deny Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It's the tension in their relationship. And there's just this moment where Perpetua, and this is translated into English, so uh, there's this moment where, where, where she points at a water jar and she looks over and she says, see that pot laying over there? Can you call it by any other name than what it is? And her father said, of course not. And Perpetua responded by saying, neither can I call myself by anything other than what I am, a Christian. It's a really incredible story. Um, but this idea, this principle, her, her identifying the jar because of what it does, that's a jar because it holds water. I know what it is because I've seen what it does is a really incredible principle that we're going to actually carry into the text today as we kind of read through these verses. That what something does reveals what that thing is, or, or rather what someone does reveals who they are. In our text this morning, we're going to see Jesus do some things uh, we're actually going to see about this, this, this 24-hour period snapshot of Jesus' life right after he's called uh, Simon and Andrew and James and John to follow after him. We get a snapshot, a day in the life of Jesus. If you've ever wondered what that would be like, you see it in the text today. He says to them, follow me, and they are following him into this, into this day. This day in our text, and as they follow him, they see how what Jesus does reveals who Jesus is. And the same thing is true for us this morning. Note takers, this is for you, top of the page. What Jesus does reveals who Jesus is. I want to draw our attention to this morning through the text. Now, there's going to be a number of themes that we see and a number of things that Jesus does that reveals who he is. We can't dive so deep into all of them. It's going to feel a little bit more like the motifs at the overture at the beginning of a musical. You're going to hear these come up over and over and over again as we continue through the gospel of Mark. But I want to lay out a few of them for you this morning to hold on to. We're going to Start in the text like we always do. I hope that was, that was all just time for you to get to Mark chapter one. Um, 
um, uh, the scripture journal that we were handing out. It's going to be on page 10 in there. Um, Now, we like to say that the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. So let's get into it. Verse 21, starting with setting the scene. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and he was teaching. All right, let's set the stage just a little bit for what's going on in this day in the life of Jesus. He's at Capernaum, which is kind of a home base for Jesus. It's northern Israel in the region of Galilee, along the Sea of Galilee. He's in Capernaum, and it's on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was the day of rest and worship that began Friday at sundown and ended uh, Saturday at sundown. It was typically communally experienced by the, the city or by the people that would gather together at the synagogue kind of on morning, midday on, on Saturday. The synagogue was this large gathering space for the community of Jewish men and women to come together. Children were educated there through the week. The synagogue was kind of the fulcrum of life in the town, and especially so on the Sabbath, where the community would come together for prayer and for a reading from the Torah or or the law and a teaching, which is what Jesus was doing. You remember, we've talked about this. Jesus was a rabbi, a traveling teacher. And so he's come to the synagogue on the Sabbath, which is full of people from the community, and he begins to teach them. This is what Jesus does, but what Jesus does as he teaches is not what they're used to. Look at verse 22. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. You could circle that word in your Bible, and not as the scribes. Here's the first thing that we see Jesus doing that reveals who Jesus is. Jesus is teaching. What's interesting is the contrast that actually occurs in this verse. The teaching that they were used to was different. Someone, likely a scribe, someone versed in the law, getting up and basically saying, hey, based on that passage that we just read, that you've just heard, this is what this person said about it. This is what this person said about it. It's almost like just pulling a bunch of different quotes and different teachings together to lay out a speech articulating uh, what that text actually means. Uh, Sometimes uh, these were a little odd. They would be a, a touch esoteric, meaning they were muddled. Or, or very mystical or sometimes impractical or they'd be like hyper demanding and focusing on intellectual minutia, lawyers litigating the law to tell people how to live. And, and what we see is that Jesus is teaching differently. He's teaching with authority. And that word has weight, exousia in the original language. The idea behind it in uh, this language is intended to communicate that Jesus teaches with conviction and with clarity. His words are clear and not muddled, concrete and not abstract, absolute and not arbitrary. When he taught in settings like this, he did so with inescapable reason, clarity, and authority. As you were to continue through the life of Jesus, you'd see that there are times where he uses story and parable to teach, and he doesn't explain some things in them. Those are still authoritative and still powerful, specifically within the culture that he's speaking to, because he's pulling metaphors and narrative from the life that they experienced so that he could teach them about the kingdom of God. But in the context of this teaching, in the synagogue, early in this ministry, it's likely that this teaching is more akin to the style of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're unfamiliar, there's a moment in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 where we get this incredible layout of teaching from Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. He gives a sermon and it's on a mount. 
Pretty self-explanatory, not super creative. That's fine. You could read the Sermon on the Mount week after week for the rest of your life and you would always find something within it that would push on the way that you live, love, and follow Jesus. It is authoritative. It is clear. It is concrete. It is powerful. And at the end of this teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, it reads that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Which is almost the exact same response that we get here in the synagogue at Capernaum. By teaching with authority, Jesus is revealing that he himself is the authority. Jesus reveals himself to be a teacher that you can follow because the authority of his teaching does not reside somewhere else. It resides within himself. It's an incredible display of the nature of Jesus as fully God and fully man. In the fullness of being God, the authority to teach the word of God comes from within him. He is the logos, the directive word. So the authority to teach is innate to him. It's it's the fullness of God, but it's also the fullness of him being human. He is a teacher, a rabbi. He's teaching in ways that can be understood in a context that is understandable. The teaching was familiar. The authority was not. Jesus was an authoritative teacher. And you have all of Jesus on display in this authority, showing that it's an authority that can be trusted. By teaching, Jesus is laying out for his hearers then and now that he is strong and he is trustworthy so we can actually follow him. By by teaching, the people were astonished. That's what happens when you hear someone speak with authority and you can simultaneously trust them to be good. It creates a gravity around the words of Jesus that we see people move towards Jesus as he is revealing this kingdom by teaching authoritatively and with trust. They can come to him. They can follow him. As Jesus teaches about the kingdom, he's teaching about it in a way where he's not pushing people away from himself or the kingdom, but actually inviting people to come to him and to be a part of his kingdom. Jesus taught with authority and he taught with authority the way of the kingdom of God that he was proclaiming. You'll remember this from a few weeks ago. Chapter 1 verse 15, the time is fulfilled, Jesus said, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. Jesus is proclaiming the way of the kingdom of God with authority. The king himself is talking about his kingdom with and to the people that he loves. So what Jesus does is he teaches and it reveals who he is, authoritative and trustworthy. But he's not just proclaiming with authority, he's also demonstrating with authority. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. There are all these people around him. He's teaching and he's interrupted abruptly while he's teaching by an unclean spirit or a man actually with an unclean spirit, which is another way to refer to a demonized Man, I love that they don't say just an unclean spirit, but a man with an unclean spirit. Mark, inspired by God, is communicating that Jesus is humanizing the man who has been demonized. It's it's, it's an incredible picture here. C.S. Lewis has a really helpful quote when it comes to this topic of demons when he says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. See, this experience of demonization 
if we're honest, seems incredibly foreign to the so-called enlightened West because our worldview is collectively more shaped by materialism than spirituality. But if you're able to suspend the sort of pseudo-cultural snobbery that comes along with the progressive materialism and move from a Western-centric view to a global view, this stops being so foreign. And if we were to go back to the first century near Middle East, and the, oh, it would actually seem a little more, less, less than not foreign, more like common. There's a number of writings of practices of people who would engage in what's called exorcism, the attempt of removing a demon from a person, and they were, in a word, quite strange. (laughs) They had ritualistic incantations. It required a purified and prepared person. It required a minion or or 10 men to be there to help. It could involve all sorts of practices from trying to wash the demon out with water or inhale smoke to drive the demon out, all these bells and whistles and, and wild things. Now, I just want you to imagine that you're watching this as a follower of Jesus. You're you're watching Jesus, he's teaching, 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 out of nowhere, I know who you are, aren't you? You come here to destroy us, you're Jesus now, you're the Holy One of God, super distracting. You you understand along with Jesus and the rest of the room, this is an unclean spirit within this man, is an exorcism about to go down, what's happening? And then you start to get a little bit anxious because you're like, am I a part of the minion? Am I a part of the tent? What am I supposed to do here? Jesus, I don't really, you didn't prepare us for this, you just said, follow me, and now we're at a synagogue. Like, what do we do? And Jesus is just calm. He doesn't seem very bothered by it. In fact, look at what he does in verse 25. Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out. You see that? Jesus is teaching, 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 interrupted, and he basically says the equivalent of shut up and get out. Jesus is setting himself apart. Please don't miss this. Jesus is setting himself apart from everyone else. He's saying, I don't need the bells and whistles. I have authority. Jesus is displaying the kingdom of God in a powerful way by revealing this authority. His power, his strength, his command over evil. He is demonstrating the kingdom that evil has no place here. It doesn't coexist with me. Jesus isn't saying I tolerate evil. He's saying I remove it. He's not saying I manage evil. He's saying I eliminate it. It's a picture in a sense of the prophecy about the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, the Christ in Isaiah 61 where it says that he will set the captives free. Jesus is doing that here. And what Jesus does here reveals this kingdom that he's making a way for with his life for all people to be a part of. That in Jesus, freedom is available. Liberation from all that oppresses is available. In his kingdom, there is power for true freedom to be experienced. So Jesus does. He casts out the demon and it reveals who he is. He is a liberator. In liberating this man, Jesus is revealing that he has authority not only to teach, but he has authority over all things that are wicked, demonic, and destructive. This is the authority of Jesus Christ on display, unfazed, clear, in control, and obvious to everyone around them that Jesus is not like anyone else. How do you respond when something like that happens? Verse 27, and they were amazed. Duh. Um, (laughs) They were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? It's a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they, they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. This word amazed is really interesting. It gives this idea of being struck 
struck with awe. Like they were terrified at what they'd just seen and they were in awe of what they'd just seen. They are terrified. Please don't miss this. They are terrified by the authority of Jesus and the judgment of this demon and his power over this demon. And they are amazed at the authority of Jesus and the liberation of this man. Both at the same time held together. Ultimately, what Mark is drawing our attention to is this. Jesus Christ is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. He's doing so with great power. And who he is is being revealed in what he's doing. In teaching on the kingdom, he reveals he has the authority to be trusted and followed. In demonstrating the liberation of the kingdom, he reveals he is more powerful than the darkest evil. What he's doing is revealing who he is. And it happens at the synagogue and the home. Look at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew. Don't think single family living. Think like compound of townhouses with a shared courtyard. He entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came back and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. So we see here is Jesus healing healing Simon's mother-in-law. She's been laid low by a fever, which at this point in time was fatal. Again, like original language, it's saying that she's been laid low by a fire. We hear fever and think aspirin and rest. They heard fever and thought, prepare the tomb. Like this is significant. This is deadly. So, so what does Jesus do? He takes her by the hand and he lifts her up. He heals her. And what he does reveals who he is. Jesus and healing shows not only that he is powerful, but that he is merciful. He comes in, is told by his excited new followers. Can you imagine Simon's like, I just saw you cast the, I've seen you teach with authority. I bet, do you think you could do something for my mother-in-law? And so he comes in, enters the home, heals her, sees her, takes her hand, lifts her up, heals her. And what we see her do is the exact same response that all of us should have, men or women, when we see Jesus do something significant in our lives. We get up and we serve him. Here, Jesus reveals an aspect of himself that is consistent across the Gospels. He is powerful and he is merciful. It's a quality found within the very nature of God. As God describes who he is in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. It is a defining reality of who he is. Jesus is saying, I have authority and I am merciful. I am good and I am strong. What he does is heal and what it reveals about him is is that he is merciful. And he shows this mercy inside the house and he shows this mercy outside of the house. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. He healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So with sundown coming, the Sabbath is over, which means people can travel to come to Jesus. And so just as Jesus taught and liberated in the organized place of worship, just as he moved in the organized large gathering, he liberates and heals and moves in the housing complex of Simon in the small gathering as well. Why? Because what Jesus does reveals who he is. He is merciful. And in being merciful, we see that Jesus is also approachable. 
He is demonstrating that he does not push away those who come to him, but invites them rather to come. The whole city comes, and as many as come to Jesus, that many are healed and freed. What he does, again, reveals who he is. He is merciful, and the kingdom that he's bringing is marked by mercy and is powerful enough to bring healing. It is a beautiful display of what his kingdom is like as we look at what he does and see what the king is like. So then the sun sets and the city grows dark and the crowds stay kind of late into the night, but eventually they disperse. Jesus goes to sleep. (laughs) Long first day, we'll call that a good first day, okay, right? Like calls people to follow him, teaches with authority, casts out a demon, heals a lot of people. What are you doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm sleeping until like 9 a.m., right? Like that feels like generous, right? I'm, I'm sleeping in. What does Jesus do? Verse 35. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus, after a long day of ministry, chooses to get up early so that he can go to the desolate place, the deserted place, the wilderness, and have an undistracted time in prayer with God, his Father. We've seen Jesus as teacher, as liberator, and as healer. And as we see him rise early to depart to the desolate place, we see an aspect of what it means for him to be, what Mark calls him in chapter one, verse one, which is the son of God. He just wants to be alone with his father. (laughs) I am... could preach a whole sermon on just these few verses. Could take the next 18 minutes and 30 seconds just, just here, but I'll, I'll say it in a sentence instead. If Jesus needed to get away to go and be with his father, what on earth would make us think that we don't need that at least as much as Jesus does? We see this rhythm in the life of Jesus where he gets around people and he gets around them and he's like, this is the good news and this is the kingdom and these are all the things. And he gets around people and 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 he goes long days, hard days, and then he gets up in the morning and is like, I've gotten around people, but now it's time I gotta get away with my father. And it is a beautiful picture that I get so afraid of the hubris that can exist sometimes in me, to be honest, and, and, and sometimes in spaces like this where we believe that we can do something for God without getting away to be with him. And Jesus is laying out a very clear pattern in his life. You get around people, but you also got to get away with the Father. This is modeled over and over through Mark 1. You can't miss it if you read the Gospel of Luke as well. It's not just a good idea. It is a necessary practice for those who follow Jesus because you are literally following Jesus and doing what he did. So Jesus gets away with his father and then his followers find him after looking for him to let him know that everyone else is looking for him. And they say, Jesus, where are you? Everyone's looking for you. Can you like hear the hunger almost in, in that sentence as they, as they say it? They finally found him. Okay, come on, Jesus. Let's go do it again. This is so cool. We're blowing it up. Let's, let's cast out some demons. They can free some people again. Like they're excited. Like they, the full expectation is that they're going back to Capernaum. They want to plant First Baptist Capernaum. They want to buy a building and set up some programs, get real insular real quick so long as they can, they can just watch Jesus do his thing. In their heads, they've thought, we've made a great decision in following Jesus because everything's working out for us. 
We're going to have power and authority and influence. We're going to look really good in the city now. Look what Jesus says. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns. Let's start from scratch so that I can preach there also, for that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus, the Son of God, went into the wilderness to be with his Father. And Jesus, the Son of God, did not just come for Capernaum. He would not just die and rise again for Capernaum. He came for the world, and so he starts with the next town. He shows his disciples and us that the kingdom of God is marked by movement. There is movement in the kingdom of God. I'm going to move to get away to be with the Father, and I'm going to move to get around people who do not know this good news about the kingdom of God. So what Jesus does is he gets with his Father, and he moves and, and reveals that he is the Son of God. So Jesus leaves, but on the way, he meets somebody. Going from town to town with his disciples who have found him. They're a little bewildered. Like, why aren't we going back to Capernaum? Okay, we're going to the next town. That's why you've come. Okay, that, okay we're just going to keep following you. All right. You can see that they're just a little confused as they're still following him to the next place. And then verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Just a little background work here. Uh, a leper was someone who was told at some point, you have a communicable and contagious skin condition. Um, there was a, a whole litany of things that could have fallen under leprosy. You have a communicable and contagious skin condition. If you remain in the city, in the community at all, you will also contaminate all of us. You have to leave. So to be called a leper is for your life to be over. You are removed from your family. You're removed from your synagogue. You're removed from that, that place that you worship. You're removed from your community. You're removed from your livelihood. You live outside of the city. And as Jesus is in between the two towns, he runs up. This leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling. It says, if you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. Some of your translations might say compassion there. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. Can you just... Leper could not be touched. If someone touched him, they too would contract what he had. How long had it been since this man had been touched? Jesus touches him and says, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, hold on to that, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing for what Moses commanded for a proof for them. He says, go back to the community that you came from, go show yourself to the priests so that he might uh, be able to walk you through everything that's necessary for everyone around you to know you're cleansed, you're healed, you're good to go, you can re-enter the community. But just don't tell anybody that it was me. <laughs> well, verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it. Whoops. Um, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. There's so much we could get into here. Again, it's an aspect of the mercy of God, the mercy of the kingdom on display as Jesus is moved with pity and compassion and powerfully heals. I will be made clean. But I think this section reveals Jesus is actually doing something that would foreshadow what he would do later. You see, 
Jesus is moving in between cities. That's where this leper is. That's where this man who had leprosy is. And when we see Jesus healing him and sending him back into the city. Now remember the entire story that we've been in from verse 21. At the beginning, Jesus is in the synagogue. Jesus is inside the city. And this leper that entire time is outside of the city. And by the time we reach the end of the story, it is Jesus who is on the outside, no longer able to enter a town, in part because this man that he healed continued to talk about what Jesus had done for him, and it is now the leper who is on the inside. They start with the leper on the outside and Jesus on the inside, and by the time the story ends, Jesus is on the outside, the leper's on the inside. Jesus trades places with this man. Jesus takes his place from him and gives his place to him. Can you just imagine the first moment where this guy would walk back into the house of his family? How long had it been? Like months, years? He walks in and his father sees him and it's like seeing a ghost. You're not supposed to be here. You're going to contaminate all of us. You're not supposed to be here. And he's like, no, 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 dad, I'm good. The priest said, I'm good. I got healed by this guy, Jesus. Like, 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 I'm back. It's okay, I'm back. Do you imagine what the father would have said about his son? I think it would have been similar to what the prodigal son's father says about him when he returns in Luke chapter 15. I think he would have looked at his son and said, oh, you were dead, but now you're alive. You were lost, but now you're found. You were exiled, but now you've come home. Perhaps the word that he would use there is my son has been saved. Jesus trades places with him. And as he does, it reveals and foreshadows who he is, the Savior. Jesus trades places with him just like Jesus would trade places with all those who would believe in him. The theological term for this is double imputation. The 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this when, when Paul writes and says, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That means my place, my sin, is imputed or put on Christ. His place, his righteousness, is imputed or put on to me. It is this trading of places that Jesus does with the leper that reveals who he is. He is the Savior who will suffer in the place of those who trust in him so that our sin might be taken from us and his righteousness might be given to us. It means if I start on the outside and Jesus is on the inside, that through what he's done on the cross means that he went on the outside by getting up on the cross so that I could come inside. He trades places with this man on the road and he trades places with us on the cross. We deserve the punishment for our sin and instead with all the authority that he taught with and all the liberative power that he cast out demons with and all the mercy that moved him to heal and all the movement that being a son led him from town to town to bring this good news, Jesus goes up on the cross and trades places with us. A number of years later, one of the men who's here and following Jesus, Simon, who would later be called Peter, would write about this. And in blending this with Isaiah 53, he'd say, he, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. His authority over sin is ultimately seen in him dying in our place to take our sin from us. 
to be the necessary sacrifice for our sin in our place so that by his wounds on the cross, we who trust in him might be healed. The healer heals us of our sin. Man, what an incredible, just seeing what Jesus does, revealing who he is. He's a teacher. He, he, he's a liberator. He's, he's, bringing, he's healing. He, he's in the movement. He's around with his father. And he's trading places with his leper, healing the leper. I just want you to think for a moment, just imagine for a moment that you're one of those four that Jesus has asked to follow him. You've watched this day in the life of Jesus. You see him teach with authority, liberate those who are oppressed, heal and show mercy, lead you to the next city, heal the leper and trade places with him. What starts to go on through, through your mind? As you see more and more of who Jesus is by watching what Jesus does, what thought starts to form in your mind? I wonder if it would be like this. I wonder if the thought that would start to form in your mind would be that what seemed impossible before without Jesus now actually seems possible with him. That what seemed impossible before Jesus now seems possible with him. Just think about it. This is a display of Jesus Christ doing impossible things. Teaching with authority. Freeing a man nobody thought would ever be freed. Healing. Showing his mercy with the mother-in-law that Simon was sure he was going to have to create and bring to a tomb. He does the unexpected thing of going to a new place to bring the good news. And he restores a man who had leprosy to the community trading places with him. Like if you've seen him do all of these things, I wonder if that same thought would start to just boil up in your mind. That this idea that Jesus can do things that before seemed impossible. I want to turn our attention from the scripture to our setting because there's some of you in this room who've been asking God to do things that are or seem impossible. Like maybe you're sitting here thinking, hearing this and, and you hear this and think, Jesus, like, like this part of you that's been asleep for so long maybe starts to wake up a little bit and you say, Jesus, like is it possible you could actually do that for me? You could be the teacher that I follow you could be the liberator who sets me free. You could be my merciful healer. You could bring the good news to me or to my friend or use me to be a part of that. You could actually trade places with me. I've struggled with assurance and believing that you've done that, but could you actually do that? Could you actually be that in my life? Maybe you, as I did when I wrote this message this week, realized there's things that you used to ask God for, you used to ask God to do, that you stopped asking because you struggled to believe that he would or could do those things. I was just confessing this to my connection group last week, but I uh, struggle with anger. It is not a loud or external anger. It is a quiet, internalized anger. And while there is absolutely room in the scripture for righteous anger and that God is slow to anger, mine is neither righteous nor slow. Usually it is me being angry with me. And as I was writing this message, I had a moment when I stopped and realized that I couldn't remember the last time that I asked God to free me from this self-directed anger. Like I think I'd focused on building in so many tools in my life to stop the bleeding, to mitigate the anger that I experienced, to try to work my life around it, that I'd stopped asking God to heal the wound. So there are things that I've been asking God to do that seem impossible. Freedom from my anger feels like to some degree impossible. But I looked back over this last week, at the last few years, and I remembered that there was a time several years ago where I was praying that Jesus would make me more gentle. And, and, and like looking back, I, I've become more gentle than I ever thought that I, that I could. 
I looked back and, and I saw times where I was, this stretch of five years where I was absolutely unequivocally addicted, and I don't use that word lightly, to pornography, where I could not go a day, half a day, hours without excusing myself from wherever I was to go somewhere to watch pornography because of how like, overwhelmed I was by my need for it and how Jesus like miraculously liberated me from that. Like I looked back and I was like, oh Jesus, like I know you can do it. I've been asking you to do it. I've seen him do it before. I've seen him do a dozen other things that seem impossible. Maybe you have too. There's things you've been praying for that you've seen him do and there's things you've been praying for that for some reason he has not done. Maybe that's you in the room. You've been asking God to do some things and he simply hasn't. Can I remind you of a moment in a garden where Jesus prayed to God, his father, and said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup I'm about to experience on the cross, dying for sin, drinking the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prays. And within that prayer, he, he does confess, not my will, but yours be done. But he does ask, let this cup pass from me. And his prayer is not unanswered. It is simply answered, no. And then he prays again. And then he prays a third time. And in the scripture, you see that God strengthens him, but does not relieve him. So perhaps when we pray, when we ask for liberation and freedom and mercy, God will bring it. And perhaps when we pray, what he does instead is gives us the strength that we need to endure for another day. He invites us to be with him in the wilderness, to be with him, the God who knows what pain is. A God who's not unfamiliar with suffering. Maybe you see Jesus do all this in Mark chapter one and that part of you that you wish could be led by his teaching or free through his liberation or that you hope for mercy for. You wanna be a part of his movement but you question how God could ever use you or you just wanna be assured that he's actually taken your place but instead you've learned how to live your life around what feels threatened as you look at what Jesus can do. That part of you that stopped hoping because it's hurt too much to be disappointed over and over again, breathes again and comes alive for a second. I just want to take a moment here at the end and pray for you in the room. I actually want to invite you to join me in praying as well for yourself or for someone around you that you've also been praying for. To ask Jesus to do what only he can do. To move with power and authority in your life and to bring freedom. If you're here and you're not a Christian, that's okay. I hope it's not too shocking that we pray and actually expect and believe that God could do something, whether it's free entirely or strengthen us to endure. Maybe you could find the strength this morning for just a moment to whisper a prayer to him as well. See, what Jesus does reveals who he is, and maybe all you need this morning is for Jesus to be who he is towards you. So I want to invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads, and I'm just going to lead us through a, a short time of prayer. So perhaps you need to ask right now to help you, to, 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 for Jesus to help you see him as teacher, as authoritative, as trustworthy. So you ask him to help, help you see him in that way so that you can see who he is and follow. Maybe it's asking Jesus to set you free. With the number of people in the room, there's that many and more number of things that may need to be set free from. So you just need to ask again, to hope again, the prayer of faith again.
maybe your ask is for him to be merciful towards you, to invite you to take place also in his movement, just to, to even give strength for tomorrow to wake up and get away and to be away with the Father. Perhaps you need to remember. Remember that he's traded places with you. To remember to strengthen the assurance of salvation that you have through Jesus Christ. That he gives eternal life. No one will ever take anyone away from his hand. Maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior before and you need that picture. You need to remember. You need to receive Jesus Christ. Understanding that he's traded places with you as you put your trust in him. He's taken your sin that separated you from God on himself and has given you his victorious life as he resurrects. He gives you that life so that you might have assurance of eternal life forever through his life, death, burial, and resurrection that what Jesus has done for you is enough for you to be with God for eternity forever. Perhaps you just need to put your trust in Jesus this morning. Maybe you need to remember it, which we'll have a chance here to do in a moment through communion. That as you take the bread to remember for a moment that this is representative of the body of Jesus Christ that was broken for you and for your sin. And as you dip it in the juice that you'd remember that's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you and for your sin. His body broken and his blood shed. He experiences the separation of sin for sinners so that sinners who put their trust in him may never experience that. Maybe, maybe in that practice of communion you need to remember again. And ask him to strengthen and remind you through the day, through the week of what he's done. And so Jesus, we come asking you to simply be who you are. We trust your word. We trust you, who you've shown yourself to be over and over again. You've shown yourself to be teacher and liberator and merciful healer. You've shown yourself to be the son of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, who would trade places with us on a cross and who would rise again victoriously doing what we could never do on our behalf and for our sake so that we might be in that kingdom with you. So Jesus, this morning we confess that we trust you and your authority. God, I pray for those who may struggle to trust in that where there's doubt and struggle and difficulty this morning, I pray that you would, you would give life to those places where there's doubt or where there's struggle or, or where disappointment has just like covered and masked any sort of hope. God, I pray that you would allow faith to rise up, hope to rise up again, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So Christ, as we've stared at your word, would you cause faith to rise? Would you cause us to to believe again, to hope again, to trust again. That as we see what you do, it would help us to have a faith and a confidence in who you are and who you reveal yourself to be. Would you help us? God, that as we take communion, would you help us to remember? Christian, as you take communion, would you remember who Jesus is and what he's done? And as we sing, 
that we would confess in singing who Christ is and what he's done. Jesus, we love you. We need your help. It's in your name. Amen.